Hello, and welcome to the Precious Little Sleep Podcast. Today, we did something a little bit different. We opened up the floor to questions from parents just like you. We got many more than we could address in one podcast, so we picked the 8 to 10 questions that we felt represented the ones that would be most common for our readers. I'm pretty sure that if you give a listen, you'll find something here that relates to your situation. So let's dig in. Hi, it's Alexis Dubieff, and I'm here with Ashby Mizell. And today we're taking reader questions or listener questions because we have both readers and listeners. So we went to the Facebook group and we asked people, what are some questions you'd like us to tackle? We got an overwhelming response. Uh, we've picked about 10 of the juiciest questions out of maybe 80. Uh, but don't worry, guys, if your question didn't get answered, we're going to be doing this again in the future. So there will be other opportunities to get your question covered by the podcast. So Ashby, why don't you kick us off? So the very first question is, is my baby going to die a horrible death if their arm or leg slips through the crib slats? Ah, the and slats. is the answer enormous blankets and bumpers? <laughs> People have this really huge fear that they're going to, like, you know, break a leg or get an, a dislocated shoulder from the arm in the slat. And um, they actually did a study on this recently and found that real injury beyond you know, some upset and maybe a bruise due to crib slats is enormously rare, like enormously rare that anything, you know, beyond I'm upset and maybe I flash around and get a bruise is, is ever going to happen. But people are horrified when they see their kid's arm or leg in the crib slats on the monitor. They freak out. And we know that there is a risk of strangulation with the big fluffy bumpers. Well, that's the, that's the result, right? They freak out. They see this on the monitor or, you know, because they're still in the same room and they look over and see that leg sticking out and they're like, oh my God, I must prevent this from ever happening again. And so then immediately the reaction is, well, I'm going to just fill the, the, the crib with bumpers. And, you know, I, I have spoken uh, loudly about not liking bumpers in cribs for years. And I constantly see them, constantly see bumpers. And I'm talking like the thick padded bumpers that have been associated with an elevated risk of SIDS for, for, for like a decade. This is not new information. They shouldn't be on the market. They have no functional reason to be on the market. Now, uh, in response to the safety issue, you know, people have been turning to the mesh meshy breathable bumpers. And in all truth, I use these for my kids as well, because at the time, it seemed like a good plan. However, recent research has suggested that even those can present a certain hazard. And we have to look at the risk reward. The risk of SIDS is more serious than the risk of getting a bruise because my leg got stuck in the crib slat. So when we look at these two options, the bruise because of a crib slat leg stucking in there is far preferable. So we need to kind of relax about the, oh my God, her leg is in there, his arm is out, what are we going to do? And sort of accept that it's okay and that nothing terrible is likely to happen. And, you know, most kids will stop sticking their leg out there because they don't like the feeling of having their leg stuck in there. So I'd say if it really becomes an issue that you absolutely cannot handle, uh, a pack and play has a hundred percent mesh siding and will yes. fit a kid at least through a year. Pack and play, uh, you know, sleep sacks, um, zippy type suits. There are other ways to kind of contain your, your child's limbs, um, uh, that are, you know, safer and, and, uh, uh, less invasive. 
Uh, another question that comes up is how to get rid of the snooze button feed. So if you're unfamiliar, the snooze button feed is a feeding that typically happens around four, five, sometimes six in the morning, and it kind of buys you all an extra hour of sleep. So you can either wake up for the day at five, or you can feed your baby, they fall back asleep, and everyone gets an extra hour, hour and a half of sleep. So I'd say is. As long as you're making sure that your child's falling asleep independently at bedtime and that there's adequate wake time throughout the day with respect to your child's age so that they can sleep longer than the snooze button feed, your options are very imperfect. You can, at a later age, I would say probably nine months to a year, you could experiment with what we call the sad mornings method. Are you? Ashby, why don't you tell us what the sad morning is? (laughs) Sad morning is... I say that snooze button feed is at 4 a.m., and it usually gets you to 5.30. Well, you, uh, when the baby wakes at 4, you let them have the sad morning until 5.30. Commit to this. This is one of those things you got to commit to, like, two weeks of sad mornings. It's this largely successful. I think a lot of it is user sabotage. People don't like the two full weeks of sad mornings. The, the sad morning tends to make everyone feel sad. Yes. Yeah. And you're up then. You're up at four, regardless. Yeah. yeah. But, the, but the point of that is to break out of a habitual waking and, uh, and you know, not to make unrealistic expectations of your child. Like yes. we're not saying, well, we're not coming in to get you till eight in the morning, but eight. to say, you know, 4 a.m., your sleep drive is still pretty strong. Your, your night sleep duration is short. You need to sleep. We don't need to be eating. So we're going to just, you know, rehabituate to the new normal, which is sleeping until five, five thirty. Yeah. So sad mornings are definitely out there as a reasonable and sometimes appropriate approach. Yeah. I'd wait for about a year for that. I wouldn't push that at a real young age. No. As for how, you know, how to get rid of it, that's so sad. Sad mornings is an option. Uh, Gently weaning is an option. Sometimes if you're nursing for the snooze button, switching to a bottle, if that's on the table, um, is helpful because bottles are less exciting and rewarding. So that sometimes just diminishing the, uh, the, the reward of the feeding is enough to help get over it. Um, some people uh, have chosen to co-sleep instead of feeding. So, you know, they bring baby into bed at five in the morning. That sometimes works. It sometimes doesn't work. You would know it wasn't working if your 5 a.m. snooze button co-sleep turned into a 4 a.m., 3 a.m., 2 a.m. You know, if it kept inching backwards, that would be a big red flag. Okay, this is not working. We need to stop this. But um, that's sometimes an option. I would say that the older the child is, uh, the more likely that <laughs> the sad morning approach is probably the right way to go. When your child is two or older, you can kind of combine that with a toddler nightlight or a nightlight on a timer to give your child a visual cue of, hey, this is sleep time, this is morning wake time, and until the light turns on, you know, we're just going to be asleep because that's what we do at night. And that toddler alarm clock, we addressed that more in the last episode, Early Wakings, and um, on the blog. Oh, nice plug. So our next question is, what to do when baby reacts to sleep training with vomiting, banging head, falling asleep, standing up, or other dangerous and concerning behavior? Yes. So let me address vomiting. So so when an adult, uh, if an adult were to get so upset they were to actually throw up, that would be a sign of like severe distress. And uh, I don't know any adults who've who've done this. I've never actually been so upset. I've I've vomited. I have either. Um, no, not my. But that's our. You know, that's what we're projecting onto the child. Like, oh my god! Like, if I was so upset, I would throw up. Like, I would be like severely traumatized. And now I'm asking my you know 14 month old to do something that is traumatizing them. 
reality is most kids are throwing up because the valve at the top of the stomach is weak and, you know, just undeveloped. And most of our bedtime routines involve feeding so that they have a belly full of, of milk. So when you know, you have a belly full of milk, you contract those stomach muscles, you have an undeveloped valve, it's just going to come shooting up. So it's less vomiting and more just sort of like spit up. It's just, you know, spit up. Uh, It is, you know, no one likes to see that happen. And of course, you know, I would encourage you to go in and clean things up, you know, dry sheets on the bed, clean jammies, little hug and a song back into bed. Um, another approach is to also put a bigger gap between the last feeding and bedtime so that there is some digestion time in there. And we don't just have like eight ounces of breast milk or formula sloshing around in there. Um, but a child, you know, clenching their stomach and then, you know, spitting up a meal they just finished is not the same as an, an adult who is, you know, horrifically traumatized and thus, you know, throwing up out of, (laughs) out of horribleness. I want to just um, address the falling asleep, standing up. So I would not consider that a dangerous or concerning behavior, but rather a mildly annoying. I think the worst thing that's going to happen is they're going to fall over, and now they're up again, and now mm-hmm. they're crying, now they're standing up, and they fall asleep, fall over. So what I would do to break that cycle is just go in quietly in the dark room and lay them down a few times. And uh, if they fall asleep standing up, you might go in there and lay them down. And if your child's young enough that they haven't figured out how to get down from that standing position, really the answer to that point is practice a lot during the day. You're probably only a few months away from when they can get down. Well, I would actually time- say d- days, typically. Once you can stand days. up, like getting down is not like three, you know, three months. It's like, it's like a, oh, you know, like a, a couple of days, days to- a week, you know. And yeah. reality is, I mean, your crib, like they're they're falling from what a height of twenty inches. They're not going to become injured if they fall no. into the crib. I, I think the big issue is, can they or won't they? So if you yeah. prop your child up on the couch, you know, standing position on a soft surface, and they are easily getting down and sitting happily, then they can. So if they're standing in their crib, it's a choice they're making. And that's something that you have to accept is your child's going to make choices you don't like. This is just the beginning of a long road of choices your child's going to make you don't like. (laughs) So, you know, that's their choice. If they can't sit, then we need to, you know, help them and give them practice during the day so that they become master sitters. And then again, we're back to, well, now they're making a choice and that's their choice. Um, As for headbanging, so headbanging is, is, is is alarming and it's easy to go oh my god like what is this headbanging is actually a, a self-soothing method for kids any kind of repetitive behavior um and it's it's actually quite common in many scenarios it's not something specific to sleep or sleep training you'll see it in a lot of um uh situations you know things that are unfamiliar or slightly stressful or just kind of you know a self-soothing thing just like you know s- thumb sucking or touching their own hair or chewing on a blanket do you think it's kind of a repetitive behavior in the same way that an adult fidget maybe? Yes, like a, yes, nail biting, you know, anything like that. So, um, uh, it, again, it is enormously unlikely for a child to hit themselves so hard that they're injuring themselves. What you see is actually just more of kind of a light tapping um, for like a minute or two, and then they kind of like give it up. So, you know, feel free to talk to your pediatrician about this if you're concerned, but, you know, almost unilaterally, it's just sort of a sign of something they're trying to do to figure out, you know, how to get comfortable and how to calm themselves down. And it really just think about it in terms of 
would you be concerned if they were, you know, chewing on a blanket or touching their own hair or sucking a thumb? These are all kind of tactics that kids organically will use um, to figure out how to calm down. Yep. So this was a question. I'm just going to read it verbatim here. It says, uh, regarding five and a half month to seven month age kiddos. It is the ideal time to sleep train, but is often made more complicated by the fact that these babies are still needing to be fed one to three times a night, which makes middle of the night wake-ups almost inevitable and super confusing for moms. So I think what she's getting at here is the idea that um, in a sleep training scenario uh, within these age ranges, you might be looking to remove sucking, nursing, pacifier, bottles from the bedtime routine. So we're, we want, we're trying to foster independent sleep. Previously, we had a child who was being fed to sleep, nursed to sleep, bottled to sleep, used the passy to sleep. We're removing that association at bedtime. However, this child might have been eating six times a night. You know, now what do we do? We still have to feed them. What are we doing? I don't actually find this super confusing. I mean, yes, we're still going to feed our child at night. We just need to kind of figure out what were the real feedings and which were the uh, requests for food, bottle, pacifier, sucking, which were really just related to the sleep association. So I say a good rule of thumb is if awaking occurs very early in the night, you might want to commit to whatever you did at bedtime. So if you did extinction or you did checks at bedtime, you might want to commit to that same thing early in the night because we find that sometimes those early night feedings can reinforce the sleep association even if bedtime is without the sleep association. So if your child's going to bed at 7 p.m., they're waking at 9, and this is for that 5.5 to 7-month age, that may be time to uh, not feed. Now you have that waking at 11 or 12, you give them a feed. Another good rule of thumb is if they wake one hour after that feed, that's also an indication that we're uh, the baby's waking to be soothed between sleep cycles instead of hunger at that point right after our previous feed. It's like they barely get their mouth on the bottle and boom, they're out. And then, you know, one to two, maybe three feeds that are like three to four ounces. So the three to four ounces are a real feed and the one, two ounces are just kind of snacks. So post sleep training, I would consider the times that the three to four ounce bottles were happening as real feeds that we're going to go feed. And I would sort of ignore or respond how you did at bedtime to any other requests for bottles. Nursing. Oh, go ahead. Oh, and a good rule of thumb is also any real early night wakings. Mm-hmm. You might want to consider extinction on those. So if your child's going to bed at 7 and there's a 9 a.m. waking. 9 p.m. Uh, 9 p.m., yes. Sometimes that early night feet can reinforce a sleep association for the yeah. rest of the night, even if bedtime is solid at that point. And by the way, even if you're nursing, it's usually you're, you'll typically again people are exhausted, so they're sometimes like like just half asleep when this is happening. But if you really pay attention, you'll find that there's a couple feedings where the baby is like on the boob twenty seconds out, mm-hmm. versus you know a legit ten minute you know jaw movement, swallowing is happening. So in a post sleep training world, you would kind of clue into okay, these were the times the real feedings were happening. These other times were just suck suck sleep. So, yep. so those are good guidelines to kind of figure out when your feeding should be happening. Uh, also, one last tip, typically falling asleep while feeding in the middle of the night is not an issue. People are always concerned about having to wake their child after a 2 a.m. nursing session. Typically, it's not a problem. So if they fall asleep nursing at 2 in the morning, put them in the crib, go about your business. And I'll also address, sometimes people say, well, there's usually a feeding, a good solid feeding at 11 p.m. And my child woke at 10.55, so we let them cry for two hours, and they were still crying. I and I would just be mindful that your child can't tell the time at night. Yep. And so sometimes you just kind of have to round 
1055 to 11 or what have you. And I think at that point, it really just is not an exact science. You know, if you fed at 1030 one night, no big deal. You know, yeah. it's going to change night to night. Yeah, That's just be how a little, little fluid. A little fluid. My 10 and a half month old goes down completely awake after a solid routine where nursing is completely separated and we don't use a pacifier. Lately, he is up screaming in the middle of the night and won't go back down for two to three hours. So this is what we call a split night. And it usually occurs because your child has not accrued sufficient sleep debt during the day to fall asleep and stay asleep for the amount of time you're asking them to be in bed. So if you have a, your child's organically waking at 7 a.m. and you're putting them to bed at 6 p.m., that's 13 hours, they're probably just not capable of sleeping that length. It can also be too much napping during the day. So whenever this happens and there's no sleep associations at bedtime and your child's consistently up for that big unhappy chunk during the night, we really have to look at the daily schedule to see is there too much napping somewhere, not enough wake time, too early bedtime. Yeah, it's typically it's a too much sleep issue. And um, and I blame, you know, there's this ph- persistent philosophy in kind of sleep z- books, I guess, that your child is constantly overtired, constantly overtired. And the answer to every sleep problem is more sleep, when actually the answer sometimes is actually less sleep. Now, if your child's, yeah. you know, taking 20 minute naps and is awake for, tw- you know, eight hours prior to bedtime, that's a different matter entirely. But if you're if your child's taking chunky naps, if your child has a you know, a night duration that's longer than 11 hours. These are all pretty good clues that the middle of the night waking is is a result of the fact that they're, they might be sleeping too much. At 10 yeah. months, you know, if they're taking a third nap, that third nap might be yeah. eroding their sleep drive so they can't sleep. You know, keep in mind that over the first year of life, your child's sleep needs are steadily decreasing. So they're constantly yeah. month to month needing less sleep than they needed before. And this is a part of their biology and, and that you're going to have to kind of move with that. And a, a persistent gap in the night's sleep is a sign that you haven't moved with that enough. Mm-hmm. And I think that book recommendations that you're talking about where they're constantly stressing your baby might be overtired is because most American children are getting too little sleep. So True. they're very much, it are a lot of overtired children. I think, you know, when you're on a sleep group that's largely stay-at-home moms who are obsessing about nap schedules, it's not maybe representative of the whole... Yeah, I think we have a special group of people who are pretty sleep-aware. We're sleep-savvy. You know, we're not, uh, you know, just blowing through naps all day long. Right. So the next question, oh, Alexis, this one, how to salvage days when sleep is off to get baby on track? You missed a nap. Your nap was short. (laughs) You woke up too early. The dog barked at 4 a.m. Now what do we do? Do we make bedtime 5 p.m. tonight? So step number one is don't panic. Crappy days happen. Yes, and we do. can't like panic flail. We can't Kermit plan- plan- you know, panic flail when this happens. It's part of life and it's going to happen. We also, I, we can't make sweeping generalizations from one bad day. Like people want to jump to conclude, <laughs> like, we had one bad day. I'm going to change my nap schedule. Nobody no, no, no. ever does that. <laughs> panic flail, you know, so, so we have to let the bad days just be and accept <laughs> that, that that is a part of life with babies and kids. It's just, it doesn't end. There's going to be bad days. Um, So you're having a particularly crappy day. I have a couple of thoughts on this. One is 
it's okay to force a nap. Now, not everybody can do that, but if you can force a nap with baby wearing, stroller walks, car rides, you know, some of us have some backup plans. Like we'd love to have a nice hour to an hour and a half while the child's in a crib and we can have some free time. But, you know, a decent fallback is, all right, let's go for a walk around the park and baby can take, you know, an hour nap in the stroller. Um, You don't want to make that like an everyday thing, but that's a great fallback plan. The other issue is, what do we do to get back on track regarding bedtime? Now, in an ideal world, your bedtime, your child's bedtime would happen at the same time every night. And uh, if you'd like to understand the science behind that, listen to episode six. <laughs> I love you, Ashby. <laughs> so, so that's the ideal. And we don't want to do big swings in bedtime. And I'm always a little nervous about making big swings in bedtime to push it earlier. Mm-hmm. And there's some biological reasons for that. And the big reason is actually called the dead zone for sleep. We are wired to not sleep in the hour preceding our biological bedtime. Yeah. So it's a little, I get nervous when we're like, well, bedtime's normally eight, but we put them to bed at six. Um, so making sweeping changes to bedtime on a rough day uh, is not ideal. If you want to move bedtime up slightly, maybe by a half an hour on a particularly bad day, you know, sure, go for it. But I would be more encouraging of you to try to force the nap by some baby wearing stroller walking kind of options versus trying to, you know, swing bedtime around like a, you know, like a drunken yo-yo. Oh, that, yeah. <laughs> I agree. I think generally the take home there is don't panic. You're never going to have the perfect week. Speaking of you the perfect roll. week, the next question was, baby has a three-hour wake time before a 7.30 bedtime. Baby has woken up from last nap between 3 and 3.30. What do you do? Panic you flail! Panic flail! Keep, and then you keep bedtime consistent for the reasons Alexis just mentioned and for reasons you can listen to in episode six. But especially as babies get older, you should err on the side of overtired at bedtime. If your child is not tired enough, you're virtually guaranteed either a rough bedtime, rough night, early waking. If child is under overtired, there might be some protesting. You might have a relatively unpleasant last hour of the day, but it, their sleep pressure exists at that point. So you want to err on the side of overtired. And really, it is impossible to manage a nap schedule so perfectly that you always have this exactly three, four hour gap between the last nap and bedtime. So just consider that an approximation. Yeah, I call it nap yoga. Like typically between six to nine months, there's a bit of nap yoga where you drop the third nap, but you can't quite make that long stretch. And if you have a crap nap day, you end up with a too long wake window before bedtime. And I agree, you know, sometimes you just got to push through. Now, as we just said, if you want to scooch bedtime up a tiny bit, you know, baby's melting down and just telling you I'm done fine, go for it. But we just don't want to go crazy with the bedtimes and trying to, you know, let it flop about like a fish just because naps were weird one time. Yeah. And I say the older the baby, the more they can be stretched. Exactly. Your four month old might be melting down if bedtime's a half hour later or whatever. Yeah. The nap yoga is only like usually like a month or two. It's not like a forever thing. So one question was, how do you approach sleep with a late preterm baby? So generally, when you have a, a premature child, I have, I have two major thoughts for you. One is, from my perspective, I'm going to consider that child's um, adjusted age pretty much for the first year. So if somebody's like, oh, my child's five months old, but they were born a month early, I'm like, well, that's a four-month-old. Developmentally, yeah. I'm going to consider that a four-month-old. Um I've seen other pediatricians talk about actually counting their adjusted age for two years. 
Um, so, you know, somewhere in that zone is sort of the area which I'm going to consider adjusted age. The other is I'm going to, I'm going to be on high alert for SIDS hazards. So you're at a much Mm -hmm. higher risk with a premature child. Um, the challenge of course being is that you're going to be in the newborn phase longer than a full-term child. And that's tough. That's a tough phase to be in. And so stretching that from a three-month to a four or even five-month period, it's pretty brutal. We're all going to get really tired. It's easy to fall back on unsafe sleep habits. Because your child is a preemie, you need to be on high alert. So, you know, anytime you're making unsafe calls about, you know, falling asleep on the couch with a child on your lap, you know, co-sleeping in an unsafe, you know, adult sleep environment, uh, putting, you know, baby to sleep on their belly because it works better. These are really risky decisions to make for the full-term child. It's extra risky for you. So, you know, the answer is we got to stick to the safe policy as much as possible. If we're really getting desperate, we need to ask for help. We need to, you know, find options, but not fall back on unsafe sleep. And unfortunately, that's just what you got to deal with when you had a premature kiddo. Yeah, it's rough. You got yep. You got a rough, long newborn stretch. Yep. Uh, but typically, it all works out fine. Next question. My question is: When do kids' sleeping issues really end? My kid is two and a half years old, and everything still revolves around his sleep. Going on vacation, spending the night at grandma's, sleepovers at friends. I worry and have a reason for it all the time. I imagine there's a certain age when children's sleep just sorts itself out in terms of sleep associations, bedtime routines, and wake times. Now I wonder, I, what say, the, I wonder what the reason for She goes, I have a reason for worrying. What is the reason? What's the reason? Uh, we don't know. <laughs> I think that, you know, I always say, people say, when does, when does sleep training end? And I, I say, well, bedtime boundaries end when your child's old enough to set their own bedtime. So that's probably somewhere in adolescence. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think it ever ends. My kids are seven and nine, and we still we still adhere to consistent bedtime. We still have sleep, you know, bedtime routines. Um, we don't blow these things, you know. Uh, we spent uh, two weeks in France this summer, and we were home at our chalet, going to bed at seven thirty. Um, that's what we did. So, uh, I think sometimes it's. People feel like, you know, everything revolves around sleep, but think about all of the aspects of your life that revolve around your child. Everything revolves around your child. You eat meals when your child eats, eats, you know, needs to eat. Like we don't have European dinners at 930 anymore because the kids need to eat at six. Um, You know, we have snacks twice a day. My kids still need snacks. So we have to plan for snacks. If we have errands to run and we're going to be running errands when they need to eat, we're going to have to pack snacks in the car because they're going to need to eat. So that's just kind of life. And I think this question often comes from a place of anxiety of, I struggle to set these boundaries. When am I, I going to not have to set boundaries? When am I going to not have to deal with resistance that my child's going to give back? And I mean, really, the answer is just to become confident setting those boundaries, confident that you, know, you can um, assertively and kindly set that bedtime boundary. And you know, as your child gets older, too, it's a whole lot easier to talk about it and there's a lot more strategies. You can involve them more. I know, Alexis, you talk about your family meetings where you have the kids come up with solutions. I, I sort of feel like embedded in this question is the issue that their two-and-a-half-year-old doesn't sleep well when they travel. And what they might really be asking is, 
when can our child sleep better in strange places? And that answer is also, it depends. So adults have, and this is a measurable thing called the first night effect. We don't sleep well the first night in a new place. And even if we think we're sleeping okay, when they put all the electrodes on your head and actually track how you're, you know, cycling through sleep. Well, of course you don't sleep well with all the electrodes on your head. (laughs) I know, right? Deep lurking variable. (laughs) I don't sleep well in a sleep lab, but I I sleep just great at the Four Seasons, you know. But, you know, so this is a measurable thing that when we sleep in a, in a new environment for the first night, we don't sleep as deeply as we do, which kind of makes sense if you think about it, like, you know, from the whole, like, evolutionary perspective, like, in strange places, there would be dangers. People who, you know, cave people who slept through those dangers got eaten by wildebeests, and the, you know, cave people who were more alert and were able to, you know, go hide from the wildebeest, survive to have, you know, children, and here we are, you know, descended from the surviving cave people. So... Um, so that's a common issue. You know, I will say that, as you said, as kids get older, you can have conversations and, and talk about consequences and say, listen, hey, we're really excited to go camping. I want to go camping all weekend with you. It's going to be so much fun. We have to go to bed at bedtime. And if we can't fall asleep at bedtime, we might have to cut our camping trip short and come home. So let's go see how it happens. Let's go see what works. And, you know, and if we have to come home, that's okay, too. So you can have a conversation with a four-year-old about kind of the natural consequence of not going to sleep. Whereas with a two and a half year old, you know, it's a little trickier. Yeah. So maybe that first family vacation should be a nearby camping trip yes. and not to France. That's what we did. We camped like five miles away from home. That's great. Then you can come right back yeah, home. Come at right back home. Yeah. It's not working out. Here we go. Yeah. Uh, all right. Here's a good one. So why do babies persist with sleep associations even when they don't get them at bedtime? My baby goes down without a pacifier in her bed. Every night, she's almost six months old. She still wakes almost every hour or two. And I've been giving in and offering the passy, moving her to the swing, swaddling. I know the answer to this is likely to stop offering everything and and to endure the middle of the night crying until she sleeps through. But I'm really frustrated. This is the thing. She went down without her pacifier. Why does she want it all night anyway? Um, I love these questions, right? People are like, I did everything right. I didn't get a gold star. This is so unfair. There's often a waking at about four and five minutes after bedtime. It's that waking after the first sleep cycle. I think they really cycle out of sleep then. and Sometimes that's when the passy goes back in. Mm-hmm. Bedtime was solid. And I think that often the child treats that like it was a 45-minute nap, and now you put a passy in at bedtime. Yeah. There's your sleep association. And I also, I think this person is imagining that she's going to have to endure like lots of middle of the night crying. Um, I, I would say that the problem is really happening when the child goes down for bed and an hour later wakes up and is going into the passy, the swing, and the swaddle. So the reality is, let's say bedtime is seven. Child wakes up at eight, passy, swing, swaddle happen, and then Bob's your uncle. If they remove the passy, swing, swaddle from the eight o'clock awakening, there will probably be tears. However... What I would expect to see happen is that all of the subsequent wakings to yes. get the pacifier reinserted will end. So what we're really and looking... Give, give it a little bit, a couple days, give it a week. Yeah, yeah, give it a couple days. But it's really what's happening at 8 o'clock that's, you know, pushing things into a bad direction for the rest of the night. And if we make that change at 8 o'clock, the rest of the night should smooth out significantly, you know, flowing from the change at 8 o'clock. So it's... um so I'm sorry you're frustrated, but this is this is what your child is telling you. This is 8 o'clock waking is mucking me up. Okay. Next question. My 11-month-old goes into the crib fully awake, 
40 minutes after nursing and a consistent bedtime routine of nurse, bath, book, song, bed. No crying. He's still waking up at least twice to nurse. Sometimes dad can get him down again. Usually not. You have a night weaning issue. Mm-hmm. So bedtime, looks, elect- bedtime looks beautiful. What's happening at bedtime looks perfection. So, you know, gold star, wonderful. At 11 months old, you can be more aggressive about night weaning than you could at, say, six months, five months. Um, you know, Alexis often recommends we reduce each feed by one minute a night until we're just down to a couple minutes, and then we can do extinction. I think at 11 months, you can be a little more aggressive about that, uh, assuming your child is developing normally. And uh, especially as you get older, we hear questions about this with like an 18-month-old. My 18-month-old is still nursing twice a month. I say at that point, don't bother reducing those feeds by one minute. I mean, I think at that age, you can say, okay, the boob buffet is fully closed at night because they're fully capable of getting their calories during the day at that point. You know, weaning is a tricky subject because, you know, all we know is that this child is waking twice a night. There's a lot of things that can be driving that. It can just be preference. Some kids are just boo babies. They really, really dig it. The fact that dad can sometimes get him down again suggests that he's not starving because the starving kid would not be able, like ever, would not allow dad to put him down again. Some Mm -hmm. kids are eating a lot of solids that are high water, high fiber, and not filling. So, you know, some 11-month-olds might be eating, like, you know, avocado and ground beef, in which case... Solid is like <laughs> like legit calories. Yeah, but, you know, <laughs> I know, right? Like, but you know, others are just doing like applesauce and you know puffs, and that's yeah. just fiber and water. So, so those those filling but not calorically dense uh, solids can sometimes be mucking up your daytime caloric intake. Some eleven month olds are in daycare; they don't like bottles. They snack all day. Yeah. They take the minimal you know amount possible at bottles, and then mom's home in the afternoon and the evening, and they're like, woohoo, tanking up. So, yeah. you know, there are things that can be tricking things up um, that you can, you know, look at. Uh, you know, one fallback position if the standard kind of vanilla just reduce the nursing thing isn't happening, if it's on the table, is to switch from nursing to bottles because that's sometimes an easier transition for kids is to, is to, is to go with a smaller, 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 smaller bottle. Uh, it's easier to let go of that than it is to give up, up nursing. But if it's really, you know, if it's really a grind and you're kind of ready to be done – you know, sometimes the answer is just to push, push, push on and be like, all right, let's do this, bud. We're all done. Yeah. Um, let's see. Are we running out of time? We're running short on time. So let's do one, one last question. I like this one at the bottom here. What do you do when your baby hates sleep so much that she starts to hate her bedtime routine? Baby's crying through twinkle, twinkle, little star. That's about the saddest thing ever. <gasps> Well, I don't like to say that babies hate sleep. I would like to say, I like to frame it in terms of saying separating is hard. They, it's a compliment. They love you. You are so much fun and such a blast to hang out with that, you know, ending their fun time with you is a hard thing to do. Um, much like, you know, leaving the amusement park is hard. You know, they're having a great time. Who wants to go home? This is awesome. They don't hate home. They just really like the amusement park. yeah, Yeah. Right. You know, it's exactly, exactly. So, um, so protesting at separation is a pretty natural and healthy thing. And it's a really actually a, a positive sign. And it shows that you guys are deeply connected and deeply bonded and that you're awesome. Um, so, you know, the fact that there's some anticipatory crying, because that's what we're talking about. I know what's coming. I don't want to separate. It's not that Twinkle Twinkle is bad or this book is bad. It's just that I know what's coming and I'm not happy about it. A little bit of anticipatory crying is fine and normal, and it's just the way that it is. 
Um, if it's excessive or it's starting very, very early in the routine, you might want to pause and go, is our bedtime happening at the same as the, at the right time? Are we asking her to stay awake too long? Are we trying bedtime too soon? You know, is there some problem? Um, but, but assuming that everything's all right on that front, it may just be your child complaining at you and saying, I don't like this. I want to hang out with you all the time. Take it as the compliment that it is, but it doesn't really change the fact that to grow and thrive and, and do all the great things that your child is doing, she needs to sleep. And as much as she may not enjoy separating from you, it's something that we need to do so that she can get the sleep that she needs to grow. Yep. Well said. Well, this has been a fun Q&A session. We will be doing these again. Uh, today, we asked for questions on the Facebook group. However, if you're not into Facebook or not into the group, you can always email us your questions at podcast at preciouslittlesleep.com, um, and we'll try to make this a regular thing that we'll come back to periodically. So we look forward to getting your questions in the mail and tackling fun questions in the future. We hope you enjoyed our podcast today. I know we've had a lot of fun making them as we figure out how microphones work and sound editing software. It's been a huge learning curve for everyone who's involved, but we've really enjoyed the adventure. If you'd like our podcast and you want to tell us that we should keep it up, a great way to do that is to head over to iTunes and subscribe and ideally leave a kind review. We'd really appreciate it and we look forward to talking to you soon. <laughs>